passion is for equal rights and justice for the people them what's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in welcome to the world is my country clubs special podcast the people powered planet podcast with a very special guest today uh dr donald brady phd now i got to know donald when he was chief of police of the santa fe police department and we were, my wife and I were living then in Santa Fe, and he had the extraordinary job of being an African-American police chief heading a Hispanic police force who at first were very bitter about that and were trying to sabotage him. And he had to find ways to make peace with them. And what he did, <laughs> it's incredible, it's not compromise, it's something way beyond that. You'll hear about that shortly. But what he did so impressed people in the State Department that they picked him to go to Bosnia Herzegovina for an impossible task. Now you may remember that Yugoslavia was once one country. And then because of these kind of racial and ethnic hatreds, the kind of thing we're seeing maybe boiling up in our country now, it got so bad over there that they actually broke out into a war. The Bosnians, the, the, the Serbians, the Croats were literally at war with each other, killing each other's families, murdering, mass murdering each other. and. They said to Don, okay, we've got an impossible job. The United Nations needs somebody who can bring together a police force in the most contentious part of this, of this war-torn country and meld one police force out of it. Now, of course, we know, Don, it's completely impossible. It can't be done. But if, you know, if you're crazy enough to take the job, we've we got to give it to somebody. Uh, and nobody, <laughs> nobody in their right mind would take this. But, well, you, <laughs> well, Don <laughs> had a whole different take on that. He actually ended up becoming... The, the, I guess his official title was regional commander of the, uh, here it was, the, the United Nations, uh, here it is, he's the United Nations International Police Force Task in, 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 in Bosnia-Herzegovina. He was the commander. Now, I, we want to hear that story, and the reason we want to hear it is because it may say a lot for us today in America. Right now, we saw that in Minneapolis, the old police force has been so troubled that they're, that they're talking about, how do we rebuild it from the ground up? And uh, I want to see maybe Chief Grady will have some advice for, uh, uh, for, for Chief Arandando and for other key people there, or in Portland, where it's looked like a war-torn area. Well, now, Don, you've been in an actual war, in an actual war zone. Um, how did you take on this impossible task of bringing these uh, war-torn forces together? Well, the first thing for me to consider was that it's not an impossible task. Unfortunately, for most of the people there, they had considered that it was impossible. And so for them, it was. But for me, it was not, because I didn't consider it to be an impossible task. I expected it to be difficult. Of course, if it was easy, anybody could do it, and they wouldn't need me. So the idea was, to go in with ideas about how do we accomplish that which they say cannot be accomplished? And how do we get the people that are affected by that to buy into the idea and indeed own the idea that they needed to build a new policing organization that would be democratically ruled and support all of the factions of the government that they had to work with? Wow, what a challenge. So, so how did you begin to do that? Well, the first thing is to understand that Every organization has to start out with a foundation. That foundation has to be relationships. It's how do you build the kind of relationships that support everything that you need to do beyond that? You can build all the strategies in the world. You can come up with all the plans in the world. But if you don't have the relationships to support those, you're destined to failure. 
So our first task was to understand what do you really need? And that is each of the three different factions. What do you really need? Not what do you desire? Not what is it that you think you need? What is it that you really need? And then how do I help you get to where you need to be without forcing you to compromise any of your principles or values? And how do you help me and the others to get involved to accomplish what they need without forcing them to compromise? So the wow. idea is for us to work together. Perfect. Well, now you must have had some uh, really tough guys fighting war with each other. Maybe there are people who, who wouldn't even do that, uh, would refuse to do that kind of thing. Did you try to reform the existing police department? No. Uh, reforming the existing police department was never in the cards. It was understood that if you tried to reform that which doesn't work, what you end up with is something that still doesn't work. So we didn't try to reform it. That was going to be dismantled. It was an all Serbian police department. It needed to be dismantled. So we took that police department, set it aside, and built an entirely new multi-ethnic police department using all three cultures that were to be involved. Well, now here you have three contentious cultures. How are you going to get a new police department if they're each picking some of the same bad guys? We didn't let them pick the same bad guys. That methodology had been tried in other areas of Bosnia-Herzegovina and had failed miserably. The idea is, how do you get a police department to work together? How do you get them to want to work together? Well, if I let the extremists pick other extremists to work on their side, they're picking people to fight with the other side and win. What we needed to do was say, how do I get them to pick people that are going to help them build a department that will work together? And we came to the conclusion after some discussion and understanding that we needed to get beyond the idea of compromise, but picking the right people because the right people are key. And how did we do that? We didn't let them pick each other. We had them pick the other side. So the Croats picked the Bosniaks and the Serbs, the Serbs picked the Bosniaks and the Croats, and the Bosniaks picked the Croats and the Serbs. So wow. they didn't pick the, uh, each other, they picked the others to work with them, which meant I'm not picking people that I think are going to fight me. I'm picking people that I think will work with me. People that will work to build a democracy the way it should be done. Wow, what a brilliant idea. So how did that work out? It actually worked out marvelously. But once again, once we had gotten past the stories and, and understood where everyone was coming from, and understood that we all had a common goal and that was to build a police department that would work and serve all of the minority groups. Then we began to pick the right people. And that was a simple thing to do. We just gave them three lists, Bosniaks, Croats, and Serbs. The Bosniaks got the Serbs and the Croats. Anybody that they thought would be particularly good for a democratic policing institution, they highlighted. Anyone they didn't like and we didn't care what the reason was. If they didn't like the way they did their hair, draw a red line through the name and they're no longer considered. And we had one group that really liked to not participate. So they just wouldn't pick anybody. Well, what we decided was, if you choose not to highlight a name or to cross a name out, that meant you were ambivalent and that you felt that it's okay to include that person in the multi-ethnic police. So non-participation is participation and nobody wanted to be in a position where the other guys were picking all of their people and they picked no one. 
<laughs> Consequently, they all worked together and they picked the number of people. We also had to have one other caveat. There were a certain specified number of officers to be included in this multi-ethnic police department. There had to be so many Serbs, so many Croats, so many Bosniaks. We would not allow anyone that was a Bosniak to fill a Serbian position or a Croat position. Only a Serb could fill a Serb position. Only a Croat could fill a Croat position and so forth. The idea being that you can't refuse to pick people across everybody off the list with the expectation that now I can put my own people into those slots. If you didn't put people in those slots, you worked short until you found someone that could fill the slot. Yeah, that was a pretty brilliant idea. So now here you've put together this force of people from opposing point of views, but they're still, even though they were the ones who were more workable, they still hate each other, still family members killed by each other. How did you get them to actually then begin to build a force together? What happened? Well, we have to understand that policing is a rather unique profession. The people in that profession have to rely on one another, literally for life and death situations at times. And if you happen to be in a circumstance where it was a war-torn society and they had been killing each other in the most heinous ways imaginable just months before, then you now need to have people that you can trust to have your back. So a Bosniak needed to trust that the Croats and the Serbs that he picked were gonna have his back and were gonna be there for him. Policing being what it is and the culture being what it is, they tend to gravitate to one another fairly quickly. And most of these people have been police officers before. So before the war, they had been police officers and had worked in some cases with one another. Once they finished selecting who was going to be in the group and they had been properly vetted and we knew that they were going to be people that were appropriate, then it was a question of bringing them all together, sitting them down, and then indoctrinating them so that they understood the nature and responsibilities of what it was they were going to do as a brand new democratic policing institution in Birchkov, Bosnia, Herzegovina. Now, now you've written a book called The Absurdity of Compromise. So I, I, I guess that you didn't try to get these guys to compromise with each other. You did something else. That's absolutely right. You see, most of our lives, we've been taught that there are basically two ways to solve a dispute. You can fight to the death, one of you wins, one of you loses, or you can find a way to compromise, which we have come to believe is a win-win. Everybody wins, you give up a little something here, they give up a little something there, but in the end, everybody wins. And that's a fallacy, they don't. Compromise is a lose-lose. You give up something to get something that you probably didn't want as much of. The fact of the matter is when you get finished with it, everybody walks away a little bit frustrated, a little bit wishing that they had gotten something else. So they continue to fight for that which they wish they had gotten in the negotiation. Say, we can't do that. We've got to go another step. We've got to build in a mechanism that allows us to actually get to win-win. I call that empathetic understanding. And it requires us to engage in what I call active, intelligent listening. So I let you tell your story. I let you tell me what it is that you think you need and why you need it. And then we justify that. And then we look at how do I and the group help you get what it is that you need without forcing you to compromise? Likewise, how do you help me get what it is that I need without forcing me to compromise? We can change our minds. We can come up with different solutions. And then we can work together to make certain that the solution works for everybody that it's going to affect. Hmm. 
Terrific. Well, so now let's give you some actual examples. So here you've got this police force now with people who had been at war with each other, but now they have people that they can trust that are watching their back. Uh, what was it like when it went into action? Uh, uh, how was this, this police force regarded in the society? And what were some examples where uh, they actually dealt with conflicts in, in, in ways that uh, either worked out or didn't work out? Well, you have to understand that since they had been at war, the people were suspicious. In fact, in that kind of an environment, in that kind of autocracy, people don't trust the police, never have. And they don't trust the military, never have. So now we're gonna build a police department and say, trust them. And the people are going, I'm not trusting the police. The police have never been good for us. So what we had to do was demonstrate that now you can trust the police. And how do we do that? We started out by the existing police force still had to work while we were building this new police department, but we monitored their activities. So the United Nations monitored what they did. In fact, we went one step further than monitoring. We understand that policing cannot function in the absence of the people that they serve because the police are the people and the people have to be the police. So we moved into those areas of returns where we had all of these people that needed to depend on the police and we put police officers, international police officers, as well as indigenous police officers into those areas to work with the population in conjunction with one another to make certain that their areas remained safe. When we first got there, they were blowing up houses every night. We had rocket attacks every night. We had bombings every night. We had assassinations virtually every night. And how do we stop all of that? We put the police in, in conjunction with the citizens. So we had citizen and police patrols, indigenous police, United Nations police, and the civilians working in the areas, keeping an eye on their areas to make certain nobody planted bombs, nobody engaged in rocket attacks, nobody did assassinations, but the people were working with the police. And it's an amazing thing. Once they start working together, they start depending on one another. They start caring about one another. The other thing was to make certain that we had people in there that understood the people they were working with. I can't take someone in and put them in that can't speak the language or don't like the people that speak that language. So we found people that cared about the people in that area and let them work with the people in that area. The police and the people learned to love one another in a very short period of time because their very lives depended on it. Wow. That is an incredible, incredible lesson for so many of us in America right now. Uh, well, so now tell me, uh, were the police able to gain respect in the society? They absolutely were. In fact, it became a model for all of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And why? Because the people cared. So they took a survey some years later. In fact, I was no longer in Bosnia-Herzegovina at the time, but the ambassador that was in Berchko at the time sent me a copy of the survey. The most respected organization built by the internationals after this whole process was finished were the police. Wow. The most respected. They were the most hated prior to, but after the rebuilding, after we put in place a new democratic policing institution, they became by far the most respected organization in all of Birchka. 
That is a truly amazing story, Don. Well, now it seems to me like, like in cities across the country right now that are in turmoil right here in the United States, uh, there must be many police chiefs who, who need that kind of experience. And maybe, maybe you would be a, a, a terrific consultant for them as they, for instance, in Minneapolis, begin to try to, from the ground up, build a police force with community relations that works. Uh, do you do that kind of consulting with, uh, with police departments? Is that something you're, you're, you, uh, you, you welcome? I do, but we must understand something. You've made an assumption that police chiefs actually want to do policing differently. That's a misnomer. You can talk to any police chief in this country and ask them about community policing and they can all talk the language. They all know how to talk the talk. They don't know how to walk the talk. And they don't even want to walk the talk because most of their officers don't want to walk the talk. The fact is we have to realize that the system is not broken. The system does exactly what it was designed to do. Now I've been saying this for 40 years. When I first started out saying it, people just kind of poo-pooed it and that includes law enforcement administrators. That's silly. That's just silly. I went, no, it's not silly. The system isn't broken. The system does what it was designed to do. We need a new system. Now you will hear police chiefs, and to my chagrin, they will actually espouse what I've been saying for 40 years. Oh, yes, the system is not broken. It's designed wrong. We need to fix it. So then ask them how to do that. And they have no clues. You know, well, it's training. Really? So you're going to tell me that I just saw on the news that we had a police officer tase a guy 50 times and he dies. How do you train that out of an individual? That's not a training issue. We watched George Floyd die right in front of us on TV with a police officer with his knee to his neck, two other police officers with their knees in his back. He dies after eight minutes and 46 seconds of laying on the ground telling them that he couldn't breathe and that they were going to kill him. And we're gonna train that out of him. How do you train that out of someone? How do you get that person to not do that? I mean, that's inhuman to begin with. That has nothing to do with training. That has something to do with inhumanity. Hiring the right people is the key, not the wrong people. And those were the wrong people. Now I'm gonna say one other thing real quickly before I have to stop this little thing. And that is, everybody wants you to believe that 99.7% or 99.9%, but the vast, vast majority of police officers are good cops. It's only a few that are bad. And I'm gonna tell you once again, you're fooling yourself. Rodney King was beaten while 26 police officers stood around and watched him being pummeled by four other officers and they did not do anything to stop the action. Those are not good police officers. You want us to believe that, well, they were all good officers because what, they didn't beat him? Their job is to interfere with that, to stop the beating not to stand there and watch the beating because it happens to be being done by a police officer. An officer that knows to do good and does it not is not a good police officer. We have a lot of bad police officers that need to be gone. And then we need to pick the right people to do the job. Those people that want to go beyond the idea of enforcement. 
So did you, so you must have had the same situation where you were. Uh, how did you get the police there to have a new culture where if they saw something wrong happening there, uh, they saw a fellow police, police officer uh, abusing people in that kind of a way where they would intervene? What did you do? Absolute accountability. Absolute accountability. You don't get a second chance to do that kind of wrong. If you see a person being abused and you fail to take action, you're gone. You're no longer a police officer. And if required, you'll be prosecuted. That has to happen. Once people understand that doing right is required, and if you don't do right, there are consequences for failing to do that which is right, it's an amazing thing how people begin to do what's right. And in hiring the right people, when the people know, the citizens know, that they're going to be held accountable if the right things aren't done. It's an amazing thing. There are more people that want to be cops. People that didn't want to be cops before now want to be cops because they want to do what's right. They want to be a part of something good, not a part of something bad. So when you get police departments telling you, I can't find enough officers, we can't hire enough, and almost every major department in this country is short of staff. Why? Nobody wants to be that. Nobody wants to be one of those cops. But if you change the culture and you make it good and something that's supportive, it's an amazing thing how a department that had no one that wanted to join now is overrun with applicants, people that want to be a part of something very different. It works. Wow. It's just a question of, do we have the guts to put it in place? Woo, wow, as you were saying that, just chills were going down my back and comments are flying in from people. People, I have someone here in Seattle saying, we need you in Seattle. And I think people need you in Portland and Minneapolis. This is such, an, an, such a refreshing voice to hear you talking about this crucially important issue. Um, and so uh, let me ask, let me turn to a different kind of question, your own experience. Um, now, when, if, if you get pulled over by a cop when you're driving or something, do you just flash your uh, police badge and they leave you alone or what happens? No, I act like any law abiding citizen and I do exactly what I believe should be done. I just give the officers the respect and I try to do what they ask me to do and let them do what it is that they have a right to do. And then hopefully I get to go on my way. Sometimes that works out real well. Sometimes not so much. And I have been stopped and we use various reasons for stopping the, the police use various reasons, but it can be very clear. As a chief of police, I've been stopped numbers of times and they always give me some fallacious excuses to why they stopped me. The thing is, is that I show them my license, my registration, my proof of insurance. I talk to them politely while I'm sitting there stewing inside because after a while you get real tired of being put upon by those whom you should trust to be taking care of your interests, not stepping on them. So did you find that you, uh, th th what kind of things would they pull you over for? Uh, it's the typical uh, things that they use when they're trying to do a pretextual stop, an improper display of your registration sticker. You know, so if your sticker isn't right in that little indentation, it's down <laughs> just a little bit, uh, that's an improper display or you don't use a left-hand turn signal to make a left-hand turn. Doesn't interfere with the movement of traffic, but hey, you didn't use your turn signal. Or you didn't use your turn signal 100 feet before you got to the intersection. 
You didn't turn it on until you were, what, 75 feet before the intersection. There's always some little thing. And our courts have condoned that. If you can find any violation, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's a violation, you can legally stop the vehicle, even though that's an end run around the Constitution. See, the Constitution says you cannot discriminate. We can't legally discriminate. However, if you can find a pretext to stop the vehicle, then the stop is legal. So I can now legally stop you for a discriminatory reason because I could find a pretext. I tell my people, you don't use pretext for a stop. You either have a legitimate reason to stop the vehicle or you don't. If you've got a legitimate reason, I don't have a problem with that. Neither will the person that you stop. You see, if a person is doing 50 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone, when you stop them, they know why they've been stopped. They don't think that that's racial profiling. They know they were stopped because they were doing 50 in a 30. You got no problems. If I stop you for registration sticker violation and you were abiding by the laws otherwise, now there's a question mark. And that builds on the negative relationships between the police and the public. Where did we get the idea anyway as police officers that our job is to arrest as many people as we can, to stop as many people as we can, to charge them with the biggest crimes that we can charge them with? Where did that come in? That's not policing. That's authoritarianism. That's autocracy. And it has no place in the United States of America. None. Now, wow. unfortunately, our departments were built on that from the beginning. That's the system that doesn't work. We need to redo that. Wow. That is so, so crucial that you've experienced uh, police not only from the inside as a police chief, but that you've purposely, obviously, in those stops, you could have just pulled out your, your uh, you know, police badge and got over, got over with it. So you've seen it from being the, 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 the discriminated against and from being the police chief. Uh, that's given you a unique perspective. Well, actually, it doesn't. I was born black. And I had been stopped a number of times for being black before I got to be a police chief. It just was a carryover. So that once I became a police chief, I still got stopped. I still got treated the same way as I had gotten treated when I was stopped before. What it did do is reinforce the idea that I should never forget that the people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect always. The United States of America is built on the idea that people are free. And we should never take away that freedom, even for a moment, unless it's absolutely necessary. So I now understand and make certain that my people understand that the most important civil right we have is that of freedom. And you will not interfere with someone else's freedom, even for a moment, unless it's absolutely necessary in order to maintain the peace and security for the community. If there's not something going on that's disturbing the peace of that community, that renders people in, in, to be in danger, then you don't make that unnecessary stop. And that's one of the ways for us to stop this whole issue that we have right now of police brutality. You only stop those that are required to be stopped in order to maintain the peace, security, and safety of the community that you serve.
Beautiful. Wow. <laughs> how, power, how powerful is that? Well, on that exact issue of, of we're supposed to be a free country, I believe, did you get to watch that New York Times chilling video about the federal police moving into Portland against the will of the mayor and the, and the police chief and so on? Uh, what's your comment? Did you see that? And what's your comment on that? Yes, I did see that. And my comment on that is how unfortunate we are on the brink of disaster as a country. When we allow federal law enforcement agencies to walk in and usurp the authority of the local uh, law enforcement personnel, we are dangerously close to becoming an autocracy ourselves. Now, our government should know better. And you have to do something rather drastic in order to stop that. If I were a mayor and that was my city, I'd make it very clear to the president, you do not send in federal personnel to control the streets of my city unless I request them. If you wanna protect your building and keep your people inside that building or right outside on the property of that building and they go no further. And I will have my people protect the exterior of that building. I would never let the demonstrators get that close. Now there's a thing here that the police can do that would actually work with the protesters, see? I never really had to worry about too many violent protests in the cities here in the United States of America that I worked with. It's because whenever something happened and I knew there was likely to be a protest, I went and found the leaders. There's always a leader. I went and found the leaders and we sat down and we talked. What is it that you're trying to do? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And how do I help you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish without putting the people that are going to be involved in the protests in danger, or without putting the safety and security of the officers that are gonna work with you in danger. How do we do that? And it's an amazing thing, how they will work with you and they will talk with you and they will do everything you need them to do to avoid confrontation. It's an amazing thing. In fact, you've probably seen it a few times on TV yourself. You saw where some of the police chiefs and police officers walked out and kneeled with protesters. And after they kneeled with the protesters, they and the protesters got up and continued to march with no issues. Isn't that amazing? How does that work? They just got up and marched in unison because the police were there helping them to do what they have a right to do, not fighting against them for something that they have a right to do. And we got to understand something else too. Civil disobedience is the way we get things done in this country. But if you're doing exactly what the law tells you to do, then you can't be civilly disobedient. So the very term says, I'm going to do something that's against what you told me to do. I'm being civilly disobedient. But if we really respect America for what it is, then civil disobedience is not a problem. It's how do we work and make certain that everybody is taken care of while we have a group of people being civilly disobedient. They wanna walk down the street. How can I block off the other streets so that they can walk down the street without cars running into them? If they want to occupy a park, there's nobody else in the park, what do I care? How about I find a way to protect them while they're in the park doing what it is that they wanna do? It's after hours, so what? How about we turn on some lights how about we give them a microphone and a platform to talk on? How about we get the media that they want to talk to out there to take their stories? How about we bring in some sandwiches and drinks and say, 
Do what you need to do. Let me help you be civilly disobedient. And then we will go home and we will live our lives happily ever after. Beautiful. Wow, on that high note, uh, maybe I will turn it open to a few questions. Uh, we either have some in the chat box or we may have some speakers. But Don, I just want to say I am just so grateful to have you talking on the show. And it's so exhilarating. So many people need to hear uh, these powerful, powerful messages you have. And I, and I hope out of this podcast, we, we get you consulting with some of these top cities and, and, and people around the country who need this powerful message of, an, of a new way. Um, is there any uh, questions or things in the chat box that we want to raise, Melanie? Is there somebody we want to bring on? Or should I continue just with Don at this point? Wow, I just, I want to say, Don, I was brought to tears. That was so powerful. As, uh, thank you for being here. And um, yes, well, anybody have any questions? You want, you want me to unmute or do you have, um, does anyone? Oh, Richard, has, Richard has raised his hand. Okay, so let me unmute you, Richard. Hang on a second. Here we go. And there we are, Richard. Well, thank you very much, uh, Donald. Uh, excellent talk, and I heard you on when you were also on the uh, Rotary E-Club for World Peace, and uh, that was also a, an excellent uh, talk and uh, discussion. So thank you. Uh, the... I'm wondering um, your comments on uh, the things that uh, the protesters are talking about, such as uh, defunding the police. I'm up here in Northern Ontario, Canada, where we don't have social workers 24-7, uh, and the police are the only ones uh, that are around 24-7. So can you comment on that? Um, can you comment on uh, who should be on the police board? Should you, there be uh, representation uh, and allocation of the various uh, ratios of people that are in the community? Uh, third question is uh, about uh, cameras on police. Is that going to do anything or not? Um, we'll, we'll just stop at three. I can go on though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, go ahead, uh, Don. Do you have some answers for Richard? Well, let's say at first that there's a misnomer and police officers love to use this, uh, is that you're requiring us to do too much. You want us to be social workers. You want us to be medics. You want us to be doctors and lawyers and preachers. And you want us to be all of these things and we can't do that. And I'd say, then go find yourself another job. Because the bottom line is, you should be, by the very nature of your position, a social worker. Your job is working for society. That very definition is social worker. The idea being, that I don't need to know how to do everything a social worker does, but I do need to have good sense enough to understand when this particular incident is beyond my expertise and I need to call someone else in to assist me in it. The problem that we have is that policing has become a function rather than a mission. The function is law enforcement. So I think that everywhere I go, I should be enforcing the law, which means when I get on the scene, 
somebody's supposed to go to jail because I'm enforcing the law. Well, that's kind of like that old adage that they use that if you happen to be a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you think that you're an enforcer, then everything looks like it should be enforced. And I would tell you that police are community builders. The idea is to build community. If you understand the nature of building community, then you recognize that when I show up and I get to the scene and I find that there's man wearing no clothes, he's running around with a machete and speaking in tongues, that this is probably not an issue for the police to handle as long as he hasn't already hurt somebody. What I need to do is get someone in that understands how to deal with someone that's got a mental problem right now. And I need to secure the scene and make certain that we secure him so that he can be dealt with appropriately. And that takes some finesse. Most of the time, you can talk your way out of just about anything. Using the prescription that I've given you, understanding that active intelligent listening is the key. Talk to the individual, find out what's going on. Why is he so upset? Why is he speaking in tongues? Why does he have the machete? What is he trying to accomplish? And how do I help him accomplish what it is that he needs to accomplish without causing him to compromise his views? But do you really need a machete to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? It's an amazing thing that if you use your wits, use your brain and your mouth, and you can avoid the need to use your fist, call in those resources that need to work with you. The fact is, is we don't want a social worker going to the scene first. Because if we have a social worker show up and this guy is walking around with no clothes on and a machete, this is not going to turn out well for the social worker or the guy with the machete. The first responder should do just that. Respond first and determine what it is that we need to do next. That's not a difficult thing to accomplish. The next thing is as, as we talk about this, and you have to help me out here, I'm forgetting question number two now. Uh, well, one of his questions was also about uh, officers wearing cameras. Ah, cameras. It's an amazing thing. If an officer is going to wear a camera, first of all, you got to make certain the camera's on all the time and that there have to be consequences for not having it on. And there are no excuses. If you allow there to be an excuse for not having a camera on, if you say, well, you know, the camera got tore off. Oh, well, the camera got broken. You can use all those excuses and I can guarantee you the police will. They will find a way for that camera not to work. And then you're going to say, well, you know, the camera was broken. Forget about the camera. Hire the right people, put the right people in place and make certain that there are consequences for inappropriate behaviors. And I can guarantee you all the misbehaviors you're thinking about will stop. They only go on because there's no accountability. Make the officers accountable. Who do they work for? They work for society. Who is the stockholder in this corporation? It's the people. Make certain that they understand that they no longer work for each other and just with each other. They work for the people. If you do something that's inappropriate, and I've done this in every department that I've been in, if you go hands-on, if you touch a civilian, I need a report on my desk that tells me exactly why it was necessary for you to go hands-on with this particular person. It's an amazing thing. If the police officer thinks for a second that he's got to put a, a, a report on my desk explaining in no uncertain terms why he had to go, go hands-on, they think twice before they go hands-on. And in most cases, they don't need 
to go hands-on. It's only because they're enforcing that they go hands-on. So make sure there's accountability. Camera, that's nice. If you want to have cameras, have cameras. But recognize that the camera won't stop the violence. Has it stopped it so far? The three officers that were on George Floyd's back and the one that was standing there watching, did they all have cameras on? The answer to that question would be yes. Did it stop them from acting inappropriately? And the answer to that question would be no. The man still lost his life and it's on camera. So now the question is, what do we do about it? Well, we may or we may not get a conviction. It depends on whether or not we can find citizens that are willing to say, you know what, I'm not gonna accept misbehaviors by the police anymore. We're gonna hold them accountable. Accountability is your answer, not a camera. Wow. Now, go ahead, there was one other question. Powerful. Well, let me move on to uh, Sailor Sweet uh, has a question. Uh, can you unmute your mic and turn on your video, uh, Sayla, and let's hear what your question is for Don. I think you unmuted me. Anyway, um, I'm sitting in Seattle, one of the cities that's struggling with this. Um, not quite as bad as Portland. We got the feds to leave yesterday, but still. We have a situation that goes on and on and nobody involved in it is, is benefiting from it. How did you bring people together, let's say in a city in the US, um, not just the police chief and, and the city council, but the city leaders and, and everyone, how did you bring them together to begin this conversation? It's the easiest thing in the world. And I, almost, I almost hate to say that, but it is you show up to start the conversation. You don't expect people to come to you to start the conversation. You find out where the problems are in the community to begin with. And then you go to the people and ask them, what is it that you need? You see, policing, the police personnel assume they have all the answers for policing. That's why you hired us. We're the professionals. We've got all the answers. So I will make all the decisions for you and do things to you. And I'd say, that's a wrong response. I need to do things with and for the community, not to the community. So my first effort is, as police chief, I'm coming to you. I'm going to sit down on your turf and let's talk about what it is that you need from me. And how do we together make it happen? Now I have what we call a community consensus initiative. Community consensus initiative, unfortunately can't do a scientific sampling because that's a very difficult thing to get everybody involved in a scientific sampling. But what it does do, it says anybody that lives in this city or is going to be affected by policing needs to have a voice in what it is the police are doing. And so we get together and we pull together a percentage of that community. So that we make certain that we have people that represent the LGBTQ community, that represent the uh, Caucasian American community, the African American community, Hispanic American community, the Native American community, the Asian American community, those that are rich, those that are poor, those that have been to jail, and those that have always lived a life where they're Pollyanna. The fact of the matter is everybody needs to be represented. Then we sit down and we talk about the issues that are important to them. See, I don't bring in a list and say, this is what we're going to talk about. I ask you, those people that we've all pulled together, that representative group and say, what are your issues? What are you concerned about? And let them tell us, let them tell the group what it is that they're concerned about. 
that group of people meet for like three to four days, mm. three to four days. So they take a significant portion of their life to commit to this. And then each of the issues that came up by that group are talked about in that group, in small groups, because we break them down into small groups of 15 people or so. And then they talk about their issues and they come to consensus. And then we send all of those responses to a group reporter that takes all of the responses from the various groups and puts them together and comes up with a consensus from the group as to how it is that they want to deal with this issue and why they think that this issue is important. Then we get together at the end of the day and we talk about it collectively. So we let each group kind of present what they've come up with. At the end of those days, we come up with a consensus report that says, these are the things that we're concerned about. These are the things that we think are important and we would like to see something done about. And then we form an implementation committee that actually gets with the police and work directly with the police to get done those things that the community has identified as significant issues for the community. They develop the strategies, they develop the mechanisms, they develop the protocols for going about how to get it done. And every protocol is written by the people in that community, in that committee, and the police. So there's no secret about the policies and procedures, about how we're going to do things. And then we make certain that that's published so that every single person in the community has access to that report so that they will know what was talked about, what we decided to do, how we decided we were gonna approach it, the fact that we're gonna develop policies and procedures and rules and regulations as to how it's gonna be done, and then that we've got a team in place to make certain that it's monitored and that the police are held accountable for getting done what they've been asked to do by the community. I hope that so was- can I, can, I, can I ask, is this something that you do as a consultant is to help this happen? Yes. Um, so, how, what can I do to, to begin to make that happen? Connect with people who want it to happen and? Well, clearly it all starts at the top. You have a mayor, mayor runs the city and you have to get with the mayor and say, okay, mayor, this is what I want to have done. You've got city councilmen, get with your city councilman and tell them, this is what I'd like to see have done. This is how I'd like it to happen. And I know somebody out there that's already done it. So this is not pie in the sky. This is not something that we can wish on and that we can talk about that philosophically might work. I can tell you, I've already done it. It works. Yeah. The trick is, do you want it to work? And understanding that if you try to use your police department to get it done, you're likely to have a failure. Mm -hmm. And why? Because the police are not going to be happy with the idea that there's somebody else sharing the power that they once held in their hands with absolute control. It's a fact. Uh, so you have to understand that you're going to ruffle some feathers. If you start talking about doing this, there are going to be some people out there that won't want to do it. There'll be others that will love it, but they won't likely be police officers. They're likely to be the citizens that recognize that they need better service. And let's face it, we all need better service. You see, today it happens to be an African-American who had a knee on his neck. But they're not the only ones that have knees on their neck. There are European Americans that end up with knees on their necks too. There are Asian Americans that end up with knees on their necks. Everybody in this society is a possible victim if we don't control 
where this thing called policing is going. We can build it anew, but we need to take a serious action and recognize that it starts by talking. We get the group together, a representative group. We talk about it, we work it out, and then we get with the community and we go back and we maintain that communication with the community forever. One other quick thing, when you rebuild your police department, or if you decide on reform, which I think is a bad idea, but if you decide on reform, one of the first things that needs to happen is police officers should not live outside of the community that they serve. If they're gonna serve that community, they need to be there. I have never taken a job as a chief of police where I did not immediately move into the community that I was going to serve. And why? Because the question is simple. Who paints a rented house? It's not the renter, I can guarantee you. You've gotta be willing to paint the house that you're living in and take care of the neighborhood because you live in it and it affects you directly. If you don't wanna live in the neighborhood, then maybe you should go and do something else. There are lots of jobs you can do and not be required to live in the neighborhood. But if you're gonna be a police officer and you're gonna work with me, you need to live where you work. I'm assuming that this is recorded and it's going to be all over Seattle, I promise you. I, I am so inspired. And I hope that um, you or, or Arthur can give us your contact information because um, I'm going to try to create some good trouble. Good trouble is a good well, you can go, right? They can all go to donaldgrady.com. And if you go to donaldgrady.com, uh, just simply, if you see his name on the screen, put that name.com. Yeah. Okay. You'll see uh, his books, The Absurdity of Compromise and The Injustice of Justice. And I think the cool thing about those two books to me is that they're not actually uh, workbooks or lectures, they're stories. I think Donald realized that people learn by stories. And then first thing he did when he got the police together is get them to tell their stories. And it's those gripping stories that help us identify with others. So he did these fictional stories that really bring out the points that we're talking about, but bring it out in the way where you're, 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 you're getting into the character. You're enjoying the person in the story. So if you go to his website, you can order those two books. You can get them on uh, Kindle and read them right away. Uh, but you can also see there where you can connect to him to get consulting job. We will be getting this message out and we do appreciate that you will help us get it all over Seattle. Um, is there I'm, so, I'm so inspired and so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. Um, now I know you're also, are you, you're part of Rotary, is that right? I'm part of Rotary, I'm part of the Rotary E-Club as well, of World great. Peace. Well, that's another group that we should get word out about this to Rotarians all yes. over the country because they can certainly uh, help, uh, they certainly need Don to help them energize what they're doing. And I'm sure he's available to speak. Uh, are you available, Don, to speak to Rotary groups and other clubs via Zoom like you've done with us? Yes, I am. Cool. <laughs> um, so, Melanie, do we have another question or should I uh, move on to another question from me? I believe Richard would like to, to ask another question. Go ahead, Richard. Okay. Um, you, uh, Donald, you, you've said, said that uh, going uh, through the, the police uh, chief uh, may not work or uh, the police association. Um, uh, if your mayor is not uh, a leader and going to take action, uh, how do you move this whole f uh, process forward? Moving the process forward 
is a responsibility for the people. This is your police department. The most important person in any police organization is the citizen. When the citizens get together and say that they want something specifically, they can get it. Let's face it, you guys make up the numbers and we should be serving you. So if you can get the people and you can get a significant portion of the people to get together and demand that you get a certain type of policing, you'll get it. The problem is we're usually in very small numbers. We usually get together five or six of us and, and rant and rave a little bit and they just turn us off. But if the city is 65,000 people strong and you get a preponderance of those people to say, this is what I want and this is what I want to happen, trust me, it will happen. It's the people, this is your department. This is your system. It's up to you to make it what you want. And I tell people this all the time, and this is one thing that people don't like to hear from me. And that is, who can be more responsible for you than you? You see, we hired the police and we decided that they should be surrogates for all of our crime and social disorder issues. But the fact of the matter is we can't. I had a young woman come into my office one day, walked right past my administrative assistant, walked right into my office, put her finger on my desk and said, my bicycle was stolen and where were you? Well, I put my papers down and slid my chair back a little bit and went, your bicycle was stolen, where were you? How did I get to be more responsible for your bicycle than you? I didn't even know you rode it to school today. Now you want me to be responsible for it? It's your bicycle. Now I will help you to understand how to take care of that bicycle. I will help you to understand what it is that you need to do to make certain that you are more safe and more secure. That's my job. I'm a facilitator. I will help you to build your community so it's stronger and better. But do not hold me responsible for every issue of crime and social disorder that happens because you refuse to do anything to take care of yourself. This is a team effort. We must be together. I am the police, but I am a citizen. You are a citizen, but you are the police. We need to understand that we have different roles. And if we work those roles together, we win. It's a question of respecting one another, loving one another, caring about who it is, where we are, and who it is that we're going to be surrounded by and then making certain that we do the things necessary to keep us all safe and secure. Wow, beautiful. Well, we're coming toward the end of our time and that really is a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful way to conclude. I think it's pretty rarely that we hear that love is the incredible, an incredible tool for policing. Uh, <laughs> is that, would you say that was one of your essential tools as a police officer? One of my essential tools of police officers is definitely the idea that I love the people that I serve. I love the people that I have grown up with and that I'm going to live with. And that love has to permeate everything that I do in order to make certain that we build the best, strongest communities that we can possibly have. We are not in this by ourselves. We cannot afford to have the police act as a silo. They are not a standalone entity. They cannot be a monopoly. They work for the people and they need to understand that making the people happy is what it is that they're responsible for doing. 
making the people feel safe and secure because they are safe and secure. And because the people are a part of the solution, not apart from it. Wow. Well, we all need we we all need a Don Grady in every city. Wow! <laughs> thank you, beautiful, thank beautiful. you. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank well, you. again, I want to remind people uh, they can go to DonaldGrady.com. Well, Arthur Tom Sachs wanted to make a comment. Is yes, that all right? Yeah. So Tom, you're on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to ask Don to. Uh, Speak just for a moment about the art of listening. Uh -huh. The art of listening. In the book, The Absurdity of Compromise, I talk about active, intelligent listening. You see, we spend so much of our time in conversations not really listening to what the other person is saying, but trying to formulate a response to what it is we think they might say. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that every one of you at one point or another have told your husband or your wife or someone that you care about, I know what you're going to say. Now, I would venture to say you probably didn't really know what they were going to say, but you <laughs> thought they did or thought you did. So you created a response before they even finished. And that's what we do most of the time. We're creating responses to questions that we don't even know have been asked yet. We need to do active, intelligent listening. That means, one, I shut everything else down. The only thing I'm doing is focused on you. As you talk to me, I'm listening with every fiber in my body. See, it's not just my ears hearing what you're saying. I'm watching your facial expressions. I'm watching your hands. I'm watching your movements. I'm looking at everything that's going on around you. I'm listening to the tone of your voice, as well as listening to the words that you're saying. And why? Because sometimes we listen to words and we misinterpret what they mean. Mm -hmm. Here's an example. You and I have just been arguing. We have had a really ugly argument. And then I look at you and say, you have a nice day now. Now the question is, what did I mean by that? Because I could have <laughs> meant, you really have a nice day now. Or I could have meant, go take a flying leap. I could care less whether I ever talk to you again. You have a nice day now. The fact of the matter is, the same words can mean entirely different things. If you happen to go to Iraq, they have a term, inshallah. Inshallah has three different meanings, three different meanings. So I can say inshallah, and means it's going to happen. This is God's will. It will happen. Or I can say inshallah. That means maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. I might do it. I might not. Or I can go, inshallah, which means forget about it. It will never happen. <laughs> but if I'm not paying attention to the tone of your voice, to the expression on your face, then I don't know exactly what you, <laughs> you said. Right. Now, the by the way, is, we have... We all have. of that is important. So active, intelligent listening means I'm not just listening to the words. I'm looking for the expressions, I'm listening to the tone, I'm listening to everything, and then I'm going to follow up by asking a question. The question is going to be to rephrase what it is I thought I heard, and then ask you if that's correct. And when it's finished, if it is correct, you'll confirm it, and I know I've got the right message. If you say, no, that's not exactly what I meant, then I can get what it is that you meant. But active intelligent listening is a two-way street it doesn't stop with me just hearing words. It means I've gone the extra mile 
to make certain that I understand exactly what it is you're saying. And then I put myself in your shoes, empathetic understanding. From your perspective, I need to feel this. I need to not just hear it, I need to feel it viscerally. So whatever it is you're telling me, I feel it with everything that I have and everything that I am. So that when I give you a response, it's based on what it is you are likely feeling at the time you gave me that particular statement. Well, that is just brilliant. And I'm, I, I think that we should point out that uh, you brought in the example of Iraq and you've actually served with, uh, uh, with in State Department roles working in Iraq and the Democratic Republic of Congo and Palestine and other uh, hotspots around the world. And you're bringing the wealth of that uh, wisdom to us with that incredible concept about listening that all of us need to learn. So uh, I'm glad you were able to listen to the pulse of people around the world in amazing ways. Well, I'm glad to have had the opportunity. <laughs> all right, well, that, thank you so much. I hope people will uh, carry on and continue with Don. Again, I wanna thank you for being part of the World Is My Country Club's People Powered Planet podcast. We're here every Wednesday, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, we welcome you to let all your friends know and join us when we'll have more amazing guests. Thank you, everybody. Yay. Yay Don. And our website is theworldismycountry.com. You know, I'm honored and touched that this amazing speaker could join us today. And each week here on the People Powered Planet podcast, we're going to bring you solutionaries. Lots of other people tell you all the problems in the world. We're looking for people with solutions, with fixes for how together we can build what Gary called the People Powered Planet. Now, if you don't know who Gary is yet, you've got to see our film, The World Is My Country, where world citizen number one, Gary Davis, tells us his amazing story and gives us the key to how we the people can take back our planet and build a workable world, sustainable and peaceful future for all of us. You don't think that's possible? You will after you see this movie. Just like and subscribe to this YouTube channel below and go to theworldismycountry.com slash club. Join us and together we will build the people powered planet.